Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode is part three of a 12-part series entitled COVID-19 Answering the Questions. This series features brief updates on the latest incidents and clinical data related to COVID-19 diagnosis and management, each followed by an in-depth question and answer session designed to address infectious disease specialists' most pressing COVID-19 questions. During this episode, Dr. Sharon Lewin from Melbourne, Australia, will provide an update on the latest COVID-19 incidence trends and a concise guide to management of mild and moderate disease. For more information on Dr. Lewin and for a link to additional online education from CCO's COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear a brief COVID-19 update and answers to clinician questions from Dr. Lewin. Thanks very much, Jennifer. And um, great pleasure to be hosting and speaking at this webinar. Um, As Jennifer mentioned, I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, where our epidemic is extremely small. And I suspect that most people on this call will have much more direct clinical experience of managing COVID-19 than I do. Although as a virologist and an infectious diseases physician, I'm following this extremely closely. Um, To put into context, Australia currently has just over 7,000 cases of COVID-19 with 100 deaths. So our outbreak has been uh, very small um, and very different um, to many parts of the world, and particularly the US. If I could have the next slide, please, Jennifer. And this summarises where we are today. Um, This was uh, last updated on June the 22nd um, and comes from the Johns Hopkins um, database or Global COVID-19 dashboard. And you can see here that currently the global cases are confirmed at just over 9 million. Um, The largest number of cases still remains in the United States with just over 2 million and with Brazil uh, rapidly increasing at over 1 million, and then around half a million in Russia and India, and then then the UK. As I mentioned earlier, um, these numbers are very different um, to many parts of particularly the Asia Pacific region, including Australia and New Zealand. The death rate is also um, approaching 500,000, which is extraordinary. Uh, Again, um, the highest hit Um, Countries include the US and Brazil, followed by the UK. Um, These differences between confirmed cases and deaths will be a consequence of the pace of the disease, and we'll talk about that a little later, that most people, if they die, will die in the second or third weeks. So therefore, deaths will always lag behind infections and will also be dependent on the reporting structures in place in each country. And finally, the total numbers of cases recovered is also reported globally, sitting at about four and a half million. And again, you can see that this number is significantly less than the number of confirmed cases because there is a lag with people taking at least two to three weeks, but if unwell, four to six weeks or longer um, to recover. Next slide, please. Um, So here you can see a little bit of how um, the epidemic has unfolded uh, with showing this over time Um, and shown on the x-axis is the time between February 2020 
and June 2020 where we are now, and the numbers of confirmed new cases in the thousands. And you can see um, here uh, the 10 most affected countries um, with the five-day moving average of daily confirmed new cases. And again, you can see um, the very uh, early um, and rapid increase in the orange line representing uh, the US and a, a fluctuating number of new cases showing some decline towards early June, but then an increase from early June. Now, when you look at a diagram like this, of course, very helpful to know what's happening across the country. Although many of you know, particularly those living in the US that the outbreaks are very different in different parts of the country with some uh, cities and states reporting reducing numbers, some showing plateauing numbers and some showing increasing numbers. You can though get a sense of the tempo and up ups, uptick in cases. You can see here in the green line with Brazil, um, starting later than what we had seen in the United States, what looks like to be a slower increase, which can be affected by multiple factors, primarily, I suspect, the amount of testing being performed. And then you can see this slow and steady increase with no evidence of plateau. The other countries in here are, of course, a little harder to see um, because of the scale. Um, and because of the different tempo of those outbreaks. But I think this shows you that um, we have considerable challenges um, in both uh, North and South America currently. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna now switch to management um, of mild uh, to moderate COVID-19. Next slide, please. So um, summarised here are definitions that come from the WHO on the left and the National Institutes of Health on the right for the medical management of mild COVID-19. And um, the medical management of mild COVID-19, um, which usually means that the person is um, non, not hospitalised and not requiring any oxygenation or their, their oxygen levels are greater than 94 millimetres mercury, Hospital interventions are typically unwarranted, but isolation required to contain SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Um, I should add there that in some um, countries, uh, people with mild COVID-19 are indeed admitted, but this is largely to contain transmission and isn't required medically. And in the context of a large outbreak, um, is probably is definitely not advised given the access to limiting resources. The WHO also recommends just treatment of symptoms, which includes antipyretics for fever, um, educating people on the signs and symptoms of complicated disease, so that if they deteriorate, they should promptly pursue urgent care. And this is actually very important because people can deteriorate and um, have advancing severe illness over a very short period of time. You can see on the right are the recommendations from the National Institutes of Health, saying that the majority of cases should be managed in the ambulatory setting or at home, and they may have some contact through telemedicine, which is shown to be helpful. Um, close monitoring advised as rapid progression possible, and the way to deal with this is by education, and that no specific laboratory tests are indicated if otherwise healthy. 
Finally, um, the NIH recommend that anticoagulants and antiplatelet therapy should not be initiated in non-hospitalised patients to prevent deep venous thrombosis or arterial, th arterial thrombosis unless there are other indications. Next slide, please. This slide summarises the medical management of moderate COVID-19. In the setting of moderate COVID-19, um, the recommendation is to admit to a healthcare facility for observation, to administer empiric antibiotics if bacterial pneumonia or sepsis is strongly suspected, and that this should be re-evaluated daily, and as in all practice, to de-escalate or stop treatment if no evidence of infection. A critical component of the management of moderate COVID-19 in hospitals is the infection control um, uh, um, uh, management. And that includes limiting the numbers of individuals and providers entering patient room. And that will vary in different jurisdictions and different hospitals of how that is set up. But most hospitals will have dedicated COVID-19 um, teams and limiting entry into the patient room. Um, to use uh, protective uh, measures for aerosol generating procedure for, um, and they should include staff wearing an N95 respirator or a personal respirator compared to surgical masks. Surgical masks are warranted for other non-standard um, care or non-aerosolized generating procedure. And the WHO recommends that um, isolation location in either a health or community facility or at home, really depends on the clinical presentation, how much supportive care is required. And that hospitalization is preferred for those at high risk of deterioration. On the initial evaluation, um, this will, in someone with moderate COVID-19, who most likely will be admitted to a healthcare facility, one would um, request a chest X-ray, um, potentially ultrasound um, or CT of the chest an ECG indicated, a complete blood count with differential and metabolic profile, including liver and renal function. And one um, may choose to also measure um, inflammatory markers such as the CRP, D-dimer or ferritin. These are unlikely to change clinical practice, but may, may be valuable for predicting prognosis. Next slide, please. Um, this shows, I think I like this um, figure quite a lot because it gives you a sense of the overall um, natural history of COVID-19. It's a little bit complicated, but I'll take you through this. It shows you the tempo of the um, illness and how um, symptoms are sequenced related to severity. On the x-axis, you can see the days since COVID-19 symptom onset. And on the y-axis and shown in the orange line is an estimate of the viral load of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in throat swabs. And this is a semi-quantitative um, assay. So if you just look at the orange line and look over um, the natural history of someone with uh, prolonged illness, so over the first three to four weeks of days since symptom onset, you can see that viral load actually peaks early in the illness. And in fact, um, many 
data now suggests that viral load is maximal one to two days before the onset of symptoms. So you can see that orange line um, heading up and then slowly um, heading down or reducing viral load over the course of the illness. So there is, is a disconnect with how much virus there is and the severity of the illness. High viral load doesn't necessarily mean more severe disease as we might think of in other conditions, specifically HIV. So in the first week of days since symptom onset, symptoms are often in the more mild range, fever, cough, myalgia, dyspnea. You may judge this clinically as mild disease. And there seems to be progression um, in symptoms and deterioration commonly in the second and third weeks, which is when hypoxia, respiratory failure, hypotension or persistent fever might be observed. And you can see that in the middle mid-range blue box um, on the x-axis between days eight and days 14. And then if people are going to not in, improve, and of course at any point in time, people can improve and symptoms resolve. But if there's disease progression, it's in the third week that the individual may develop um, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome and either die or recover. And understanding this tempo or natural history of the infection is really important when thinking about interventions. Again, quite different um, to HIV. Um, viral load is not the entire cause of the problem here. People tend to get sick in that second and third week due to immune dysregulation. And we're now learning a lot more about what components of the immune system trigger this de clinical deterioration and disease severity. But most work points to this being um, driven by a cytokine storm, particularly mediated by IL-6 or interleukin-6 and the innate immune response. Through understanding this um, disease pathogenesis, it's given us um, a, a clearer rationale for treatment choices. And as we are seeing more and more treatment um, uh, results of clinical trials, are being uh, published or announced, uh, we're getting a much better understanding of which treatment should be used at what time. Again, this is very different, I think, to our understanding, and I use HIV as an example, um, primarily because um, it is relevant, but also um, it is my own um, area of expertise, where antivirals for HIV play a very important role at any stage of the disease. You control the virus and then the disease is, on, is under control and CD4 T cells recover. In um, COVID-19, this is quite different. The virus is causing, we think, most of the issues early on in the natural history, while a dysregulated immune response is responsible for clinical deterioration and more severe respiratory disease. So underneath the, um, uh, the time course, you can see that a um, schematic, and this is just conceptual and it's not absolute, um, of when particular interventions are best used. And um, by the uh, type of triangles you can see, you can see that interventions that target the virus are best used early um, in the natural history uh, with the goal of stopping 
um, the patient deteriorating into the second and third phases. So you can see here antivirals um, or small molecules that we'll talk more about um, are important. A convalescent plasma, uh, which is um, collecting plasma from someone that's fully recovered from COVID-19, has high levels of neutralising antibody, screened for any other infectious disease and then given to a recipient. Of course, hasn't yet been demonstrated um, to, in randomised clinical trials to show benefit, but high interest in convalescent plasma essentially acts as an antiviral drug because you're giving someone someone else's antibodies. And you can see that immunomodulation or strategies to reduce um, the dysfunctional immune system, reduce cytokines such as IL-6, um, really play a role in this middle phase when people are have more moderate um, or severe disease. Now, how antivirals should be com combined with immunomodulators, when immunomodulators will have their maximal effect, we're only just uh, beginning to learn about that. And finally, adjuvants, which would, inclear, which, which would include um, symptom treatment or, and or um, treatment for uh, hypercoagulation could potentially be used at any stage of the illness. And so the optimal timing um, is still a very important aspect for us to fully understand. And I think this slide is important because it also tells you when you interpret clinical trials, you need to think carefully about the inclusion criteria and the clinical profile of participants and which stage they are at in this natural history of COVID-19. Because interventions that may work for someone with severe disease or ARDS will likely be and have already shown to be quite different to what might be of benefit in someone early on in the disease or with mild disease. Next slide, please. So here are the NIH guidelines um, of what and how to use um, COVID-19 treatments, which are currently considered investigational. And I recognise that there are non-US people on this webinar, including myself, and that each country will have very different um, COVID-19 treatment guidelines. So I'll just acknowledge this upfront, but we'll focus on the NIH guidelines. So, um, it, as the previous slide showed, we think about these interventions as targeting the virus, antiviral treatments, or targeting the immune system, or immunomodulators, or immune-based therapies. And eventually, we may learn that these could and be used together, though those data are not yet available. So in the NIH guidelines, um, remdesivir, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about remdesivir, a direct acting antiviral, uh, which works by um, inhibiting RNA dependent RNA polymerase, is recommended for hospitalised patients with severe COVID-19. Then NIH says there's insufficient data to recommend for or against patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. And there are now many studies currently underway, should be complete quite soon addressing this question, and I'll talk about those later in the talk. The NIH actually recommends against um, high-dose chloroquine, that means 600 milligrams twice a day for 10 days, 
And this is because there has been no evidence of any activity of high-dose chloroquine, but, in, but there has been evidence of toxicity and increased risk of adverse events. So recommended against using high-dose chloroquine. There are a number of experimental antiviral agents that the NIH recommends against, except in the context of clinical trials. And many of these agents, you would have had read um, vastly conflicting ideas about whether they work or not. And there's emerging data that um, should be available very soon in large randomized control trials that include a spectrum of people with disease severity to actually answer these questions. Those clinical trials will be available, results of those clinical trials in peer reviewed publications should be available soon. But at the moment, the recommendation is that this should only be used in the context of clinical trials. And these include hydroxychloroquine, highly politicized drug, many, many studies underway, early announcement of a large randomized control trial a few weeks ago showing no benefit of hydroxychloroquine from the recovery group in the UK, but those, paper, that paper, that those data still not available in publication. Hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is also recommended against, except in the context of a clinical trial. Lopinavir, ritonavir or Kaletra or any other HIV protease inhibitors are being actively investigated still in clinical trials, no, the recommendation is to not use these outside of clinical trials. Now, immune-based therapies um, are really uh, uh, still emerging of how best to use them. Um, some exciting data on dexamethasone, which would fit into this bucket, which was announced um, by the recovery trial in the UK about a week ago. And in fact, their publications in bioarchives in the last uh, just last 12 hours overnight for me. So unfortunately I haven't had been able to scrutinize it, but I will talk to you a bit about dexamethasone. Um, and so the guidance is that there's insufficient data to recommend for or against a number of immune-based therapies. They include convalescent plasma, which I think of as actually an antiviral uh, agent because it contains antibodies targeted against the virus. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 immune globulin, which means purified immune globulin from someone that's recovered from SARS-CoV-2. IL-1 inhibitors or IL-6 inhibitors, um, such as uh, tocilizumab. And there again are currently clinical trials assessing each of these interventions and there currently is insufficient data to recommend for or against. The NIH recommends against the use of a number of agents except in the context of clinical trials, and that includes um, non-SARS-CoV-2 specific intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG or immunomodulators such as interferons or JAK-STAT inhibitors, which are also now being evaluated in clinical trials. I should just add that severe um, in uh, the definition here uh, used by the NIH and widely used in many clinical trials is defined as um, a uh, blood oxygen um, of less than 94% on ambient air at sea level and therefore requiring um, supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And keep that in mind, particularly when reviewing the results of clinical trial data.
Um, and in the last few slides, I'll give a brief update of um, some further investigational agents. Next slide, please. So this is a really important study. Um, this is the randomized evaluation of COVID-19 therapy or the recovery trial being run in the UK amongst hospitalized patients. In this study, um, which has enrolled uh, many thousands of people in an extraordinarily rapid time, patients are randomized to standard of care with no additional treatment, with lopinavir, ritonavir or calitra, dexamethasone, hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin, so a five-arm study. They also have a factorial design with simultaneous allocation to no additional treatment versus convalescent plasma. And if progressive disease or a hyperinflammatory state, subsequent randomization to no additional treatment versus tocilizumab on anti-IL-6. The study has enrolled um, uh, more than 11,000 patients from over 175 hospitals in the UK, and they enrolled this in actual record time. I saw recently an interview with the lead investigators saying that from um, the study was designed and improved um, within a week, which is quite extraordinary. And they've made, um, the recovery trial have decided um, to announce their results ahead of publication through press releases. Um, this has been a pattern we've seen over the last few weeks or months understandable in the middle of an epidemic but of course I think one always at the middle of a pandemic I think one always needs to be a bit cautious in just looking at the press announcement because the complexity of the participants is not always apparent. So on June the 5th um, the recovery um, group announced that they were closing enrollment, closing recruitment to the hydroxychloroquine arm because of lack of clinical benefit. They reported the 28-day mortality was 25%, which I should say is high, um, but these are all hospitalised patients, of course, so this, this mortality rate is high, um, with hydroxychloroquine and standard care, and there were 1,500 people that received that intervention, versus 23.5% with standard of care alone, and over 3,000 received that intervention with a relative risk of 1.11, with confidence intervals crossing one, making this not significantly different. And, um, and uh, these results have been announced, the publication not yet available. And many studies around the world that are using hydroxychloroquine, and there are many others, and I should point out that this is the largest randomised study to date of hydroxychloroquine, the recovery trial, there are many, many, many hundreds of studies of hydroxychloroquine that actually are still enrolling and are waiting with great interest to see these, these results published. Their second announcement, um, which was very exciting, uh, was on June the 8th, where they announced that recruitment to the dexamethasone arm had halted because sufficient patient numbers had been enrolled to establish potential benefit. And I think many of us uh, were most excited uh, to see this result. Next slide, please. And here are the details are reported by the press release. The paper is now available as a pre on bioarchives as a pre-publication, so still not peer-reviewed, but all details um, are now available. 
And um, this was a very interesting finding and I think unexpected by many people in the field. First of all, the dose of dexamethasone used here was six milligrams a day for 10 days, oral or IV, and standard, compared to standard of care, which just had no additional steroids. And they assessed their, um, their findings. And again, the primary endpoint's also very important in determining success. Many studies to date have just assessed clinical improvement or reported benefit, statistical benefit in clinical improvement. This is the first study to show a significant effect on 28-day mortality, a far harder endpoint. And they divided their analyses into people requiring, um, just starting from the bottom, no respiratory intervention. So they were assumed to have mild to moderate disease but hospitalised. Patients requiring oxygen only, intranasal oxygen only, and then patients requiring ventilation. And you can see here, um, and the numbers are now, you'll be able to find um, in the study, um, in the actual preprint, these numbers are large. Um, there were 2,000 people that received dexamethasone and 4,000 standard of care alone. And then the third column, the, the relative risk of death um, for dexamethasone and standard of care versus standard of care alone with 95% confidence intervals. So you can see that um, for patients requiring ventilation and patients requiring oxygen only, so this is severe disease, um, there was a significant benefit with a 35% um, reduction in death in people requiring ventilation with the addition of dexamethasone and a 20% reduction in death in people requiring oxygen alone. So these are pretty spectacular results. And as I said, the first um, clinical trial randomised clinical trial to show an effect um, on mortality, which is highly significant. And interestingly, no effect of dexamethasone in patients requiring no respiratory intervention, um, no reduction in the relative risk and the confidence intervals crossing one. Next slide, please. And that um, brings me to the end of the formal presentation and happy to take any questions. Great. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, yes. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Loon. So we have had quite a few questions and we'll, we'll try to get through as many as we can now. Um, Susan asks, after obtaining a positive nucleic acid um, amplification test result, is, the, is antibody testing needed as a follow-up in, the, in the, the weeks afterwards? Um, in uh, Australia, and I think um, uh, similar to other countries, we would not recommend antibody testing as follow-up. Um, antibody testing, and we did a, a, um, a, a uh, clinical care options uh, um, a presentation just recently, although this field is changing quickly, at the moment um, is not recommended uh, for diagnosis. No need. Once you have a positive PCR test, you have COVID-19. Okay, great. Um, Foster asks, a new study was published in Nature showing that immunity is transient, um, but it was a small number of patients. Are there more studies looking at that? And also, what are your thoughts on, on that finding? First of all, it's important how you define immunity. Um, at the moment, uh, we don't know whether having COVID-19 once um, protects you from reinfection. 
Most likely it does. Um, the immune response to COVID-19 includes generating antibodies, uh, which are detected in nearly everyone by about day 14 and certainly by day 21. You can detect IgG or IgM antibodies. The key factor that um, we think is important is the development of neutralizing antibodies, meaning antibodies that actually neutralize and eliminate the virus. We can quantify those quite um, accurately too. And there's now several studies showing that um, nearly everyone develops neutralizing antibodies, although their teta will vary. And there's a direct relationship with, between total antibodies and neutralizing antibodies. What we don't actually know is what level of neutralizing antibodies is critical to prevent from reinfection. And I think we will look, or, or protect from infection de novo, very important in vaccine design. So I think we're going to learn that with bigger studies um, that look at serology, bigger studies that look at natural history, animal studies. The idea that immunity um, wanes, I'm actually not familiar with that study. Um, the work that I have seen has shows that your antibody teeter increases progressively and maximizes at day 21. And I haven't yet, and, that, and similar with neutralizing antibodies, I haven't seen evidence that that actually declines. From other work on other coronavirus viruses, um, especially in animal models, um, it's not a given that immunity is lifelong, as you might have following measles, for example. But I would, uh, to date, I haven't seen any evidence of when um, teeters of neutralizing antibodies decline and, um, and how often that happens. Okay, great. Um, Jamila asks, since dexamethasone showed a benefit, do you think other steroids like methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone might also work? Yes, good question. Um, I, I suspect so, although most of us um, prefer to focus on evidence-based recommendations. At the moment, um, the study that has shown these dramatic effects are with dexamethasone. So my um, recommendation would be to stay with dexamethasone, but though, as you know, we do use these interchangeably, for example, with how we might um, uh, uh, manage severe pneumocystis pneumonia. I'm sure there'll be other studies that will come out that will tell us whether prednisolone gives the same effect. My suspicion is probably not. My preference is follow the evidence and use the dose and duration that was shown to work. And I'm sure we'll refine um, that over time. Okay, great. A question from Viral. Where does dexamethasone fit into the treatment algorithm? Will it be administered to all individuals requiring oxygen ventilation? Um, yeah, so kind of the, the, the point. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone's now um, will be amending and updating their guidelines fairly rapidly as soon as the peer-reviewed publication is available on dexamethasone. I think it fits in the treatment guidelines. Um, and, and I say this with some reservation because, of course, the publication is not yet peer-reviewed and I would like to see that first. But based on the data announced and in the preprint, um, the benefit is only in people with um, severe disease requiring either oxygen or ventilation. And that's where you see the benefit, not in people with um, mild disease. And again, this is a little bit reminiscent to me of um, PCP, pneumocystis coronial pneumonia, where steroids played a major role um, with only with people with severe disease. 
okay. now what how these um how these interventions might be used um with uh, in combination with antiviral drugs, for example, other immunomodulators, you know, those um, will get insight into that, I'm sure, with future studies. Okay, great. We've had a couple of questions on your thoughts on other potential uh, therapeutics, umifenavir and ivermectin. Um, do you have any thoughts or have you seen any data on um, the use of those? agents um yeah i'll start with ivermectin because it comes from our institute okay. <laughs> and the discovery for melbourne um actually led by um, colleagues at monash university another major um, medical school in melbourne where i went to medical school and uh investigators at um, monash university have been interested in ivermectin uh as an we all know ivermectin is an anti-parasitic drug but ivermectin actually also has antiviral properties and um the group at Monash University have been studying this for many years, looking at its effect on dengue and HIV, uh, largely related to nuclear import. Um, ivermectin seems to block entry of viral viruses like dengue and HIV into the nucleus, so um, or, or, or passaging through the cytoplasm. And so that when COVID-19 was discovered, they rapidly asked the question, does ivermectin also block um, entry of COVID-19. COVID-19 doesn't need to enter the nucleus for its, um, for its replication. And they partnered with um, um, investigators from my institute, the Doherty Institute, as we have the PC3 capabilities to grow the virus and look at antiviral efficacy and show that ivermectin did have antiviral properties. And this was published um, in only, the only work that's been published is in vitro. And unfortunately, the dose used in these studies in vitro was much higher than you can achieve with the current dosing of ivermectin. And um, so although it was interesting, um, exciting that there was an antiviral, there was a drug that had antiviral activity in vitro, um, not yet shown in animal models, I should add, um, it was at a very high dose, not um, feasible to achieve with current dosing strategies for ivermectin. So I definitely um, think ivermectin needs a lot more work. They're still working away at this about whether um, it's, uh, its activity at lower doses, methods of delivery, similar drugs to ivermectin, whether they may have greater potency. So I, I'm not optimistic that we will um, find that ivermectin has potent antiviral activity, but it, it's further works needed. I should just add, though, that um, there was a large study uh, that came out quite soon after that in vitro work, which was published, I think, in antimicrobial um, chemotherapy, um, showing that ivermectin had a survival benefit. But I would highlight to you that that publication uh, was only in preprint and actually came from a database that there is some question about, um, the Sergisphere database, which subsequently led to the retraction of articles on hydroxychloroquine from Lancet and ACE2 receptor blockers from the New England Journal of Medicine. So we don't, we don't even know if the Sergisphere database is real or not. So I would ignore that clinical paper on showing there was a survival benefit of ivermectin. I would be cautious about, um, about uh, its role in uh, I don't, I would definitely not be using it in any form outside a clinical trial. And it's not even in clinical trials yet because the dosing still needs to be worked out. And the other one was UV Prenavir, which mm -hmm. is, um, which is, uh, 
a um, anti-influenza drug. So as you will all know, influenza is an RNA virus and shares some, um, some uh, pathways common to uh, SARS-CoV-2, although they're obviously very different family and different replication cycles. And UV-Prenv, if I've got that right, is an anti-flu drug um, developed and I think licensed for influenza in Russia. Um, not available outside of Russia. And there has been some small studies looking at Uvipranavir in China. So when COVID-19 hit China, there was a flood of um, small clinical trials looking for things that worked. Understandable, pandemic, totally new virus, pretty severe consequences, and people were looking for proof of concept. And so there were a lot of small studies that came out that showed potential, potential proof of concept that this might work. China actually adopted though some of those in interventions into their clinical guidelines um, in the early days. Again, I guess that's sort of acceptable and, and not sort of, it's acceptable. You're in a pandemic and you don't know what um, is working. But we're in a different phase now. Um, we're now five months, six months into the pandemic with a lot of clinical data now coming out. And so I think we need a large randomised controlled studies to know what works and what doesn't work. And that has not been done with UV Prenavir. And actually I'm unaware of a large RCT. I bet you it's out there, but I'm unaware of, it's not included in these big um, platform trials running over UK, US, and we have one such study in Australia as well. Um, I, yeah, so I'll just say one last thing about the importance of RCTs. I'm sure I don't need to convince this audience of infectious disease physicians of the, of the importance of evidence base. But the, suspect that, but the kind of preclinical hunch early in COVID-19 was, or clinical suspicion, was that dexamethasone would not play a role. Um, and that came from experience with SARS-1, I should add, not from controlled clin clinical trials, from observational studies, that dexamethasone was thought to make people worse, but it was never examined in an RCT. And so here you now have a proper RCT, very large numbers of people randomised with a clear mortality benefit. And so I think this is a lesson, though we all know it, but it's a reminder that you need the large RCT to answer the question properly. And we may, or it looks like we now have at least one intervention that will dramatically reduce mortality. And we only got this because of an RCT. The clinical suspicion, as I said, or oh, it was that dexamethasone steroids was not going to work for coronaviruses. So, um, yes, these experimental agents are really um, important. We need to test them in studies. We need to test them alone and in combination in appropriate size to work out if they work or not. Great. Okay. I think we have time for one last question. And this um, pertains to someone has asked about the, the second outbreak. Is it likely to happen in... Um, it ties to another question, which is really, um, what differed in Australia that from other places like the US or, or Italy that um, has allowed the disease to be, or the virus to be much better controlled? Uh, the key difference um, was detection and testing early in the outbreak. Mm. I have absolutely no doubt that that's been a major, major factor. So. In Australia, um, we developed a test for coronavirus at our institute, the Doherty Institute, led by um, Dr. Mike Catton. 
um, in around mid-January, as soon as the reports of this new coronavirus were made out of China, we became aware of it, of course, in early January, that um, sequence that it was a coronavirus published in January the 10th. And by mid-January, we had a test for this coronavirus that we then began to share with other similar laboratories around the country. Um, of course, everyone's public health system differs. In Australia, we don't have a CDC, but we have what's called public health reference laboratories in each state. So sort of six major public health reference laboratories. So we were testing people. Um, we had a test available by mid, late January. Our first case was diagnosed in Melbourne um, at the Doherty Institute by Mike Catton um, on January the 24th, two days after the first diagnosis was made in the US on January the 22nd. Um, by that time on January the 24th, we, as I said, had a test up and running. We were testing every person coming from China. Um, but we we're not testing everyone. We were, we, were, uh, we were heightened awareness of clinical illness in people coming back from China. We stopped flights from China to Australia on February the 1st, actually, but I think about 24 hours later than the US. But the difference was that we were testing anyone with clinical symptoms who had an epidemiological risk factor at the time coming from China or a close contact with the case. And those epidemiological risk factors, of course, changed over time as we saw an outbreak in Iran and Northern Italy, and then of course the US. So the key for us was that we were testing, isolating um, infected people and quarantining all their contacts very aggressively from about mid to late January. And if I actually going back to those numbers, our testing rates in February um, uh, were extremely high. And I think countries that have done well have had, um, had those testing rates, effective public health measures of isolation and quarantine, and as well as travel bans in place and operational very early. And a week can make a huge difference. I'll just say one last thing. People often say to me, um, oh, Australia's an island. It was summer. You were protected. But it actually was not the case. Um, by mid-March, our numbers were doubling every three to four days, just like they were everywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. They peaked in March the 29th. By that stage, we already had a lot of testing. So we were diagnosing a lot more people. Um, and, and therefore aware of who was infected and isolating quarantine. March 29th, we went into lockdown. And so then the physical distancing, of course, has played a major role. And although we have really small numbers, we still have a lot of physical distancing here in Australia. So um, for me, for example, in my work, we've only been working at 30% capacity. Restaurants only opened about 10 days ago. So in summary, early and aggressive testing, high awareness that this was a problem, travel bans, and then physical distancing. And the compliance has been pretty good. Um, and starting early is the difference. Thank you very much, Dr. Lewin, for that helpful information. And thanks also to our listeners. As a reminder, to view the COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Also, please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks again for listening.